0: Well, we've been working our way through Mark chapter 12 over the last few weeks. uh, We've seen Jesus being interrogated by the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees and scribes. But at the close of chapter 12, Jesus kind of returns the favor and he poses a question of his own. He starts the interrogation process, if you will, uh, about some of the teaching of the scribes. Uh, And these verses show us the final moments of Jesus in the temple. In, in that final week of, of his ministry. And, and in these final moments, we, we see a call to wholehearted devotion to, to the, and worship of, of Jesus as Lord. That's what we look at and what we see here in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, and let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. This is really weird when there's not a lot of loud chairs. It's like really silent in the room. Like this is—I gotta get you. This first time I've preached in here, it's weird. Fairview, all the chairs go crazy, right? Um, Anyway, like so quiet. (laughs) Mark twelve thirty-five. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, "How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David?" David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Be Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we uh, we thank you for this time to gather uh, together. Lord, we pray that you open our hearts, Holy Spirit, search our hearts, and expose uh, the sinfulness within us. Lord, lead us to repentance. And greater faith in you, Lord Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So Jesus is, he's teaching in these verses here. Uh, his teaching in these verses shows us the lordship of Christ, the hypocrisy of the scribes, and the faithful devotion of a poor widow. First we see the, the lordship of Christ. We're, we're told in verse 34, right before this text starts, that, that Jesus' responses to the questions he's been asking just kind of thrown at him throughout this chapter, results in silencing his questioners. It says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so now, Jesus decides to play offense, to go, go on offense and do some question, raise some questions of his own. Verse 35, he says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said to them, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Right. Now, the scribes, of course, are biblical scholars, the teachers of the law. These guys know the Bible uh, as well as anyone. And, and Jesus, at this point, is, is teaching the crowd. But no doubt we can, we can assume that the scribes, the Pharisees, they're, they're still within earshot. They're still listening in. They're paying attention to what's going on. And Jesus is essentially asking the crowd... Why do the theologians, right, these, these biblical scholars, these rabbis of Israel, why do they say that the Christ is the son of David? And the question is intended to get people immediately thinking about the Old Testament scriptures, right? All the prophecies about, about the Messiah, who he is, what he'll be like when he comes. It's intended to get people thinking about the Messiah, right, the Christ, the, the, the physical being the physical descendant of David. We see this all over the place. For example, God speaking to David says in 2 Samuel seven twelve, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Isaiah 9, 7 speaks of the Messiah reigning on David's throne. The passage we read all the time at Christmas, right? Isaiah 9, 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Or you see this in Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now David, of course, Israel's greatest king, right? He was the shepherd warrior king. He expanded the borders of the nation. It never knew more success than in his days. And his reign was viewed as that golden age of Israel. And there was this natural longing within the people for another warrior king. Another warrior king from the line of David to come and to restore the throne and the house of David again. This, this question posed by Jesus seems to have an easy answer when we look at those passages. Right? Well, yeah, obviously, yeah, they, they say that he's the son of David because that's what the Bible says, right? He's the son of David over and over and over again. But then Jesus qualifies his question by referencing another Old Testament scripture. Verse 36, 37, he says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The heart of this question question, uh, is a quotation from Psalm chapter uh, 110 verse 1. In which David himself refers to the Messiah as Lord. David's writing, Psalm 110, and he calls the Messiah his Lord. In essence, Jesus is asking, how can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? How can David say that his descendant who comes after him through his bloodline is actually greater than himself? And Jesus is highlighting the fact that the scribes have completely missed this huge aspect of who the Messiah actually is. Notice too what Jesus says about how David wrote Psalm 110. He says, David declared this in the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is inspired, divinely inspired scripture. Jesus is right here saying that he views the Bible as the very words of God, that it's inspired. By God in the Holy Spirit. Right? The, the writers of scripture wrote not their own wisdom. But under the authority. The supervision and the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is what we see Peter say in, in 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 110. Mark 12. 2 Peter 1. The entire Bible. Is the very words of God. Spoken to us. That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. Psalm 110. You need to listen up. It's inspired text. You need to listen to what it is saying to you. And this is what it says. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. It's referred to again and again, including the allusions to it and the direct quotations. Psalm 110 is mentioned or quoted 33 times in the New Testament. So this is a very significant psalm, a very significant passage to understanding the person uh, of the Messiah. So we should want to know what it's saying. The Lord, all caps Lord, you'll notice... The first one is all caps in the scripture. The second one, just a capital L. The Lord, all caps, is a reference to Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant name for God. While the second Lord is the Hebrew title Adonai. Right? Yahweh says to Adonai, is what it's saying. In other words, Psalm 110, David is describing this conversation that's taking place between Yahweh and Adonai. Someone He's calling someone else Adonai, actually. Usually those names are used together for God, right? Yahweh, covenant name for God, who is Adonai, that is sovereign Lord over all. Usually they're used with one thing, but, but David is portraying a conversation that's taking place where Yahweh is calling someone else Adonai. Who could that be? Who could be David's Adonai? Who is the sovereign Lord and King over David. Well, what is the rest of the verse talking about? It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a prophecy about Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand. His ascension to the Father's right hand, following his resurrection. God is saying to him, be seated at the highest place of authority in the entire universe. Rule and reign over all. Psalm 110.1 is pointing prophetically to what happens when the Messiah finishes his work in this world. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And What Jesus is doing is using the scriptures to just blow their minds about their, and expose their limited understanding of who the Messiah actually is. They're waiting on a mere human leader a mere human revolutionary military warrior king to come restore the earthly throne of David. But the Messiah that the Old Testament describes it is no, can be no mere human being, at least not only a human being. He must be Adonai. He must be Lord. How can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? Well, he must be the God-man. He must be God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. He must not only be the son of David, he must be the son of God. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. And make no mistake in saying this, Jesus is very subtly making a bold statement about himself. He's saying, that's me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. He's claiming not only to be David's sovereign Lord, he's claiming to be the sovereign Lord over all, over everything. And at this very moment in time that we're here... Jesus is is seated at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over everything as our sovereign Lord and King. That's who He is. How then can we respond to Jesus, who is our sovereign Lord, with anything less than wholehearted devotion, wholehearted worship and trust? And yet again and again, if you and I are honest with one another, we catch ourselves looking for little kings of this world to come and deliver us. Right? If we could only get the right political candidate into office. Right? If we could only get the right legislation to pass through. Right? And here's the thing with, with politics. Jesus, no matter whether you lean more to the right or more to the left, Jesus will not completely fit into your political bucket. He won't do it. He's far too liberal for conservatives, and he's far too conservative for liberals. Neither side can claim him or contain him, right? The gospel isn't even on the spectrum of the right and the left politically. It's something else entirely. It's something else entirely. Maybe it's not political things that, that capture you. Maybe it's, it's simply the cultural press, pressure to fit in, right? to, to be accepted, to be viewed in a certain way by other people. Jesus won't fit that either. He won't fit that either. Maybe He he, he demands your allegiance as Lord. He deserves your everything. Your life poured out in worship of Him. He's clear about who He is. He's clear about who He is. Jesus will not be content to be an accessory that you tack on to the rest of your life and the rest of your passions and the rest of the things that you think are important. He won't be Lord in the way that complies to your agenda for him. He's simply the sovereign Lord over you, over everything, over all. And as the passage continues, Jesus not only points out his lordship, he points, to the hypocr- points out the hypocrisy uh, of the scribes. Jesus moves from questioning the, the teaching and the interpretation of the scribes to just throwing down on their lack of character, on their lack of integrity. Verses 38-40. through And in his teaching, he said, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He displays a, a righteous judgment uh, for the scribes, selfish ambition and arrogance expressed in these various actions that he, he mentions here. I mean, the scribes would be easily spotted walking through the crowd. If they were in this room, we would have no, time, or no trouble identifying who a scribe was, right? They would be wearing these long flowing white robes. With these ornate fringe and, and, and tassels kind of connected to it. While all the common folk are wearing the colorful clothing. They're in this, this white, long, flowing robe. Right? And they love to walk through the marketplace and be spotted. So people could give them and pay them the respect that was common to do. Right? To stand in the presence of the, oh, the scribes here. We've got to stand up. We've got to show honor. And to greet them with the titles that they love to hear themselves called by. Rabbis. Father, Master. They loved hearing this. In the synagogues, Jesus says, they had the best seats while the common people sat on the ground. And when important people in Jerusalem gave a feast, it was it was a status symbol to have one of the scribes come to that feast and then to seat them in a, a seat of honor, a place of honor, even in a, a, a place above the parents of the host, the family members of the host. They were giving They were given precedence and honor over the elderly, over family, over anyone. And they loved these signs of honor and respect. And they pursue them. But the most intense part of Jesus' indictment of the scribes comes when he says in verse 40 that they devour widows' houses. Right? Now, during the time Jesus describes, they they didn't get a paycheck, right? They lived on subsidies since it was forbidden that they should take money for their work. And so supporters were, were relatively easy to come by because supporting a scribe was considered to be, you know, pious work here. earns you favor with God. So it's a good thing to do. You can get sucked into it really, really easily. And when it comes to widows and orphans, we see the Bible very plainly telling us again and again, God's heart... God's heart for, and love and care for those who were the most vulnerable in this society, the widows and the orphans. They were the most dependent and the most easily exploited in this culture. And some of the scribes would target these widows, is what Jesus is saying, and exploit them for their own gain. God will bless you, right, if you hand over that little bit that you have left, right? He will take care of you, he'll bless you. If you give, give to me. It's not unlike the so-called pastors that we see on TV, right? Praying off of social security checks just so they could buy that new private jet, right? For their ministry. Because it's easier to pray when you have your own private jet and you're flying and you don't have to be burdened by airlines and other people, right? It's just simply evil and demonic, It's evil and demonic. There's nothing pastoral or Christian about that whatsoever. We too need to be careful and discerning about what's going on around us. And Jesus says that these scribes, they seek to cover up their hypocrisy with these long, drawn-out public prayers. Prayers that were prayed not to give glory to God, but to give glory to themselves. They prayed just so people would think, oh, wow, look how spiritual they are. Look how wise they are. And Jesus is calling out their selfishness, their, their hypocrisy. And then he levels this devastating judgment. They will receive the greater condemnation. R.C. Sproul explains this. He says, as teachers of the scriptures, these men were charged with a heavy responsibility, but they had not fulfilled it. They had failed to lead the people into truth and had failed to serve them humbly. As those entrusted with the truths of God, they would incur a harsher condemnation. Same thing, Jesus is saying the same thing here that his little brother James says in James 3.1. Not, not many of you should, uh, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now obviously, you know, preparing a sermon on this, uh, this is like, wow, it's pretty convicting. Um, there's very clear application and warning for anyone in a position of leadership in the church in, the, in these verses. And particularly a, a warning for those who are in a pastoral role of leadership and teaching roles. There's a warning though for the church at large to be discerning about the leaders who they follow. To be discerning about the theology and the, the teaching and the, the, the practice of those leaders. We must be careful as, as God's people not to idolize the celebrity pastor or the celebrity author. And at the same time, do not idolize the local church pastor or the local church leader. Remembering that every one of those people are human beings who sin daily. Everyone, myself included. Right? Sinners, saved by the grace of God. There is no perfect leader save one. And his name is Jesus. Right? He, he alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy to be praised, to be followed, to be emulated in that kind of way. But beyond that, there's also an application here for all of us in regards to our relationship with Christ and His Word. The scribes were supposed to be the experts on the Word of God, um, but they were warped by their desire for approval. They were warped by their hunger for the applause of men, by their own desires for how they thought things should play out. What is your relationship with Christ and His Word? Is His Word shaping your life? Informing your life? Or is your desire for approval from the people around you, from the culture that we live in, to fit in? Is, it, is that twisting and distorting the Word and it's impact on your life. I mean, I think we in the church, and when I say we, I'm talking about myself here too. We have to take a collective look at how the innate materialism of the culture that we live in has invaded and infected every single one of us. To the, fact that, to the point that we, we are consumers about church. We shop for Churches. Right? We, we, we're consumers about everything. That is like in the essence of who we are as human beings under the curse of sin in this culture, we are consumers almost first and foremost. How has that led us to ignore certain scriptures, to pursue our own comfort, pursue our own glory over the glory and the mission of the gospel? We, we all have some repenting to do every day in that. Jesus and the Bible stand together on their understanding that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. That it is to be the final authority on all matters of life and faith. Is it so in your life? Is it so for you? There's also the question of of motive that we should ask ourselves. Is our service, in, in your service and in your worship, is it for the glory of Christ or is it for the glory of self? Is it to lift Him up or to lift yourself up? To give yourself a little pat on the back about how spiritual you are or how giving you are or how servant-hearted you are? Is it a joyful response to the grace that Jesus has given you? Resting in His grace, knowing that you have no standing to gain or to earn apart from the standing that He's freely given you by His own life, death, and resurrection. Or is it something else? In our culture, we often try to hide our weaknesses and our failures, cover them up, keep them secret, and then we like to highlight our successes. We like to highlight our strengths. When the grace of Jesus grips your heart, though, it it inverts. Right? It's what he calls us to, it's what his grace moves us to. To be freely open about our sins and our failures, to confess those. And rest in his grace. Rest in his mercy for us. And then to do our good deeds in secret. Not to blow the trumpet and draw attention to ourselves. What is your life showing you about your own motives? Jesus gives us a warning by calling out the hypocrisy of the scribes. And by way of contrast, he He also highlights the faithful devotion of a poor widow. In contrast to the hypocrisy of the scribes, Mark shares this account that highlights what it looks like to serve the Lord with true devotion. Verse 41, And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. So in the midst of the busyness of the temple, Jesus found this place where he can kind of quietly observe the treasury right? Uh, You think about like going to the airport, you find your gate, you sit down and it's like good people watching. You're like, nobody's noticing, but you're just like, wow, this is an interesting place. People are interesting here. Or even better, like when you have to go to the BMV and suffer through that torture and hell. Um, You know, there's good people watching opportunities there as well. Well, Jesus has just subtly found this place. No one knows that he's watching, right? But he's not only watching the actions of the people, he's watching their motives, the widow and the others who are seen by Jesus giving the gifts, they're not aware that he's watching. They have no idea. And in this is a great reminder for us that, that, that Jesus is watching. He's always watching. Not seeing only our actions, but seeing the motives of our hearts at all times. George MacDonald, the, the great author, wrote, uh, When we feel as if God is nowhere, he is watching over us with an internal consciousness above and beyond our every hope and fear that's a sobering reminder for sure the treasury in the temple is sitting there 13 receptacles for donations and alms and Jesus witnesses these wealthy people making these large donations but then comes a unique donation in fact the most famous act of generosity that the world has ever seen or ever known more famous than J.J. Watts hurricane relief last year uh, for Houston more famous than the philanthropic efforts of, of Bill Gates or Warren Buffett it's the humble offering of a poor widow in a temple nearly 2,000 years ago whose, whose gift is most well-known around the world. Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. It's so small, so, so seemingly insignificant in, in the contrast here to what was being offered before her. But her gift is also making a stark contrast to the the parading of the scribes who wanted people to see their good works and praise them. It's possible this this poor woman was even ashamed of the gift that she was coming to make and wanting to do it as secretly as possible so people wouldn't wouldn't see it or, or make any remarks or say anything about her. She certainly was not giving in a way that she wanted or expected any attention to be given to her gift. And we should not brush past the significance of this woman giving these two small copper coins. Commentators throughout the years have mentioned this. The fact that she gave two coins is so significant. Because what that means is that she could have kept one for herself. She could have put one in and kept one for herself, but she doesn't. And Mark is showing us in this small offering that equals radical generosity in Christ's kingdom. Radical generosity. It's highlighting this woman's generosity in highlighting this, that Jesus is showing us a completely new value system. Uh, he continues, verse 43 and 44. He calls the disciples to him. and He says, "'Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance.'" But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The big donations of the wealthy were given from their overflow, from their extra, from their abundance. But the widow gave everything that she had, all she had, nothing to spare. The the majority of those giving, their giving effectively cost them nothing, right? Right? Even the big donations cost them almost nothing. But for this widow, she made a truly costly sacrifice, even though the total sum of her gift was very, very little monetarily. Jesus sees this. He sees her heart of generosity, and he says that she's put in more than anyone else, than everyone else And once again, Jesus is showing us that he's not after your wallet. He's after your heart, right? He's not after your wallet. He's after your heart. He's less concerned with amounts and percentages than he is with the motivations of our heart in our giving. And the question to ask ourselves with our own giving is what is the motivation, right? What is the motivation of our heart? The Bible's teaching on giving, particularly in the New Testament, calls us to give cheerfully, regularly. Sacrificially, from our first fruits, not from our leftovers. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you should read them, they're particularly helpful. We're also called to do it quietly and in secret, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Does all of that characterize the heart of your giving? In reality, far too often, our giving to God is, is a lot more like tipping God than it is generous, sacrificial, cheerful giving. Right? It's a tip. We tip him from the leftovers, from the extras that we have left after we do all the things that we need to do slash want to do. Sometimes a lot more on the want than the need. Right? So this is what I got. This is what I can give. Or we give legalistically. right? 10%. I'm supposed to give 10%. I'm going to write off my 10%. But the reality is that for some of us, 10% is not, not sacrificial. Right. 10%. Doesn't cost some of us much at all. It's not costing us much of anything at all. Jesus shows here that he's less concerned with amounts and percentages and really the money itself. He's he's concerned with our hearts. And the reality is is that your bank statement makes a, a really bold, loud statement about your heart, about what's important to you, what you value, what you treasure. Where you spend your money says a lot about that. And God isn't after your wallet, he's after your heart. And he tells us though, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And he calls us to giving that is regular, sacrificial from our first fruits, not out of our leftovers. And that it would be cheerful, that it would be a joy for us to give, that we wouldn't be doing it under compulsion. But the lesson on giving isn't the real heart of what Jesus is getting at here though I think it addresses that, the, the real heart of the matter he's getting at, is if, and if we grasp it, it will move us toward a real gospel-driven generosity. It will, it will propel us in to truly become more generous people, no doubt. But giving is not the heart of the matter here. The heart of the matter Jesus is getting at here is, in fact, the heart. The heart. It's our devotion it's our devotion, it's our, it's our giving not just of our money, but of our, our trust, of ourselves, of every part of our being, putting ourselves on Christ, trusting Him completely, putting all of our hope in Him. But there's something more here than that, too. The widow's selfless sacrifice of giving, all that she has is, is really a reflection It's really an echo of the One, the capital O-One, who who truly gave it all. Jesus Christ is that One who gave all of Himself for you. He gave all of Himself. He lived a sinless life that you never could. Sinless in His motivations, in His heart before the Lord. Always acting from motives that were pure in every way. And then... And then some where ours are often turned inward and self-seeking. Jesus was always living for the glory of God from the innermost parts of his being. And Jesus then exchanged that perfect life for, for all of our sin, all of our selfish motives, and then goes to the cross to die the death that we deserve for our sins in our place. On the cross, he held nothing back. He gives all of himself, not the tiniest amount that he holds back for himself, He gave it all. His very blood poured out for you and your sin. Suffering the full cup of God's wrath that is meant for you. He took it all and turned it to favor. Turned it to grace. If you but turn from your sin and trust Christ in faith. We can have confidence that that Jesus has done this. That that He alone was able to do this. Because he's, He's not only the son of David... But he was David's Lord. He's the Son of God. We know that he was the Son of God because he did not stay dead. But on the third day he rose again. And after appearing to witnesses, after some time, he ascended into heaven where he sits at God's right hand. And he's there now ruling and reigning. And he will return again to restore all things, to bring the fullness of his kingdom and the fullness of our redemption with him. More than anyone else, Jesus himself is the generous one. The generous one. The one who's truly generous. More than anyone else, he truly gave everything for you. It is in seeing Christ giving all of himself for you, that you are set free then to begin to give yourself to him. In increasing devotion, in increasing worship, in increasing generosity with your time, talent, and treasure, with everything that you are. See the, see the one who gave it all for you and then come and give yourself to him completely. That's the call. That's the call. As we come to the Lord's table to share in his supper, we fix our eyes on, on the generosity of our Lord who held nothing back for us As we take of the bread, we take of the cup, we remember His body that was broken for us, His blood that was shed for us. May we come in with wholehearted devotion, completely trusting on the finished work of Jesus Christ as we share in this meal together. Believers, you're invited to come forward or or head to the back. We'll have stations up here, station in the back. Come and peel out this way and that same back there. Um, believers, you're invited to come in just a moment as we continue to, to sing. But if, if you're not a believer in Christ, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians. This is a, you, you don't want to just jump in and take a symbol without first embracing the real thing. And so this is the opportunity for you, if you're not a believer in Christ, to, to respond to the good news of the gospel. To see that Christ gave all of himself for you. And, and to, to respond by giving yourself to him in faith, there'll be pastors and prayer responders out here in the, the foyer. We'd love to visit with you. We'd love to pray with you about anything that's going on. But may we increasingly respond to the generosity of Christ by giving ourselves to Him more and more completely. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time uh, to gather together. We thank you that the light stayed on and the storm moved through, hopefully. Um, and Lord, we thank you for your, your generosity your generosity towards us. And we thank you that that you are not only the son of David, that you are the the son of God, perfect in all of your ways, Lord. We thank you that you've lived for us. You've given your life for us. And Lord, you've risen victorious over sin and death. Would you help us to more and more give our lives to you, to submit ourselves to your lordship, to to the truth of your word, to let it shape us day by day and move us by your grace to respond in, in, in service that is selfless for your glory, generous, that your name might be made famous and your glory seen by all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.